Welcome to Redemption Church. You're listening to our weekly podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Well, hey there. Good morning. My name's Byron. I get the privilege each and every week to serve here as the lead pastor. If you're a guest or if you're new here, I want to say thank you so much for coming out and gathering with us. Today is the last part of a three-week mini-series that we did to kick off the year over the topic of prayer. The big idea is this, is to center ourselves on who God is and what God desires for our lives. And so we've been talking about how we pray, why we pray, and today we're going to be looking at when we pray. So let's close out this series and start off this sermon with prayer. Let's do that. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege to be able to worship you, to be able to come before you, to be able to speak to you, and to know that you listen to us. God, I thank you for this church here in this city filled with these people who have come together to glorify you in everything that we do. Lord, we ask that today you teach us what it looks like for us to pray like Jesus, that we can live our everyday life with gospel intentions as we seek to serve others, as we seek to grow deeper in our relationship with you. God, what an amazing gift that you give us of prayer. So we ask all of this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I talk with you guys a lot throughout the week, and I just kind of ask you, how's your week going? Some of you you say, it's good. Some of you, maybe it was eh, bad. But all the time I ask, it was busy, wasn't it? All of our weeks were, were busy. And here's how the routine goes. I know it because I go through the same routine. As you wake up, and then you try to get that cup of coffee before all hell breaks loose. And you grab that cup, and then you're off to the races. So the kids start screaming. You got class. You might have overslept your alarm. You got to get them to school. You got to get to work. You got to get to class. And as soon as you get there, then the boss starts calling. There's term papers that are due. There's meetings. There's appointments. And it's just nonstop, hurry, busy, crazy until you make it home, maybe in time for dinner, maybe not. You got to stop on the way home, pick something up from a drive-thru cooked by a kid, you know, and so you, you make it home. By the time you get home, you get the kids you know, fed and dressed and in bed, or maybe you hang out with friends. You just lay in bed, turn on Netflix, and die, right? Isn't that kind of how life tends to go? And then so while you're laying there contemplating the existence of life, the bills keep piling up, the phone keeps ringing, the, there's messages coming everywhere, there's responsibilities that are falling on top of you, everyone's turning to you, looking at you, wanting something from you, and there's dishes. Good Lord, there's always dishes and there's always dirty clothes. And you know what? You get to do it all over again tomorrow. That's life. Hakuna Matata, baby. That's just the way life goes. And so because we feel stressed and tired and exhausted and overworked and overwhelmed, depressed or dejected, whatever it is that we feel like, inevitably the people that are closest to us, they begin to notice. And maybe they, they ask you or maybe they just kind of recognize it. And so you start talking and you know they mean well, you know they care, but it always comes to this question. Well, how's your prayer life? Oh, oh, that's where we're going now. Yeah, have you prayed about it? Yeah, well, I'm fixing to show you my prayer life. I'm gonna lay hands on you and not in the praying kind of way. Because that just doesn't help. It just doesn't help. 
I mean, you know they mean well, you know they, they love you and they care about your soul, but in the moment, this just doesn't help because everyone knows we should pray more and we all know the problem is, is that we don't. So when it comes to prayer, we can feel guilty, we can feel manipulated, we can feel obligated because we tend to treat prayer like you know, taking our vitamins or eating our vegetables or wearing a seatbelt. It's like, yeah, I know I'm supposed to pray and lay off the carbs, I know that but it just doesn't happen that easily. So while they mean well, and prayer is the foundational spiritual discipline of all of our lives as Christians to be in relationship with God through prayer, we all know that we struggle when it comes to this. Or is it just me? No? Okay, okay, so y'all are all perfect and y'all can come preach to me next week. That would be great. But we all know we struggle with prayer, and there's a variety of reasons that we struggle when it comes to prayer. You know, maybe you feel like, like, you know, like nobody ever taught you how to pray, so you don't understand what prayer is. You don't know how it works. You don't know what number to dial when you're trying to talk to God because no one ever taught you. Hopefully, this series has helped you to discover what it means to pray. Maybe you feel crazy when you pray. You're like walking down the street, driving down in your car, and you're just kind of like, I feel like I'm talking to myself right now. Um, and, and so you feel kind of crazy when it comes to prayer because you can't see God. Maybe you don't trust God. Maybe things haven't gone your way. And so when it, when it comes to prayer, you don't feel like God is faithful towards you. Maybe you don't pray because you just feel like you're too busy and you don't have time. And all of those are, are reasons and they need not become excuses for our life. While they may be reasons, they need not become excuses for us to pr- not pray. See, prayerlessness is is something that we have to overcome in our lives, and we overcome it by focusing in on the greatest desire that we have, which is God himself. And then another thing, for me personally, why I feel convicted and challenged when it comes to prayer is I hear all of these amazing stories about men and women of faith, whether through church fathers or people throughout the ages who had these amazing prayer lives. And every time I read these stories, like biographies about them or you know, history books, when it comes to prayer, I am just so exhausted. And I was like, how is that even possible? I can't pray like that. Those guys are amazing and I'm just me. And so what I wanted to do, because I know that I feel totally inadequate when it comes to prayer, especially when doing sermon prep, um, I wanted to make you feel as inadequate as I do. So um, here's what we're going to do. I pulled out some ridiculous stories of prayer throughout the ages, and I'm just going to read them to you, and then we're all just going to feel like dirt, okay? Okay, let's do it. All right, first is Martin Luther. Do you guys know who Martin Luther is? He's the great reformer. Like, he's the reason we're not, we're not Catholic, okay? And so Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses, started the Protestant Reformation, and here we are today. And this is what Martin Luther says. He says, I had so much to do today that I could not get it all done unless I spent four hours in prayer. Like, the guy's so busy, he has to spend four hours in prayer. Okay, Martin, like, thank you for the 95 theses and all of your prayer time, and I'm just going to be over here driving my car and listening to Spotify. All right, good for you, Martin Luther. Next is this guy named John Wesley. Do you guys know who John Wesley is? He is the founder of the Methodist movement. Um, The Methodist movement got their name from John Wesley because he had strange methods, And here's what Wesley said. He said, I think very little of a man who does not pray for four hours a day. Wow, there you go. That's also why we're not Methodist. Um, 
Him and Luther could hang out. They like each other. Next is this guy named David Brainerd. He was a missionary to the American Indians in the early 1800s. And this is what he said. This morning, I spent about two hours in secret duties, and I was enabled more than ordinarily to agonize for souls. Agonize for souls. He spent two hours in the morning, and through his prayer, he was able to do more than if he hadn't. David Brainerd, good for you. Next is Monica of Carthage. This one's really cool. So she lived in the 4th century AD, and she prayed for her kid um, every single day for 31 years. She would pray for four hours a day for 31 years for her son so that he would come to faith in Jesus. And after 31 years, God finally answered that prayer. And her son's name was Augustine of Hippo. So if you keep praying for your children, who knows? They could be the pillar of Western civilization and the smartest person who maybe ever lived. So that's Monica of Carthage. Keep praying for your kids. Have the tenacity to pray for 31 years for the same thing. That's awesome. Way to go, Monica. Next is Adoram Judson. Okay, he is a missionary church planter. He planted over 100 churches. Like, I'm having a hard time just getting this one up off the ground. This guy started 100 churches, and he would pray for one hour at a time, seven times a day. Seven times a day. So seven hours in prayer. Take that, John Wesley. This guy, he would wake up at, at 6 a.m., 9 a.m., 12 a.m., 3 a.m., 6 a.m., 9 a.m., and midnight and pray for one hour every day. All right, cool. All right, let's move on to the next one. All right, this guy's name's John Hyde. This is from, his, uh, from a biography written about his life. Um, he was a missionary to India, and it says, if he excelled at one thing in life, it was prayer, which is why he earned the nickname Praying Hyde. What a nickname. Good for, I'm never going to get a nickname especially when it comes to prayer. Um, next, y'all could pray for me then. Next is from the Didache. Now, the Didache um, is, is a extra-biblical text written by the church father. So it's not, it's not written by the Holy Spirit, under the authority of the Holy Spirit, but it is a text that the first church would read and study when it came to how they were to live their lives. So it's basically like the bylaws for the very first church in the book of Acts. All right? So this is what it says in the Didache 8, 8, 1 and 2. This is how every Christian was expected to, to pray. Let your fasting not be like the hypocrites, but instead fast twice a week on the fourth and the sixth days. So the very first Christians were to set aside two days every week of prayer and fasting. Two days of every week. That was what was expected of the very first church. And today it's like, man, maybe I can give up social media for a day. That would be nice. Next, moving on. <laughs> this is James, Jesus' brother, okay? So the Apostle James, there's a whole book in the Bible written by this guy we'll study later in the year. And this is what um, one of the church fathers, Eusebius, said about James. He said, James was frequently found situated upon his knees asking for forgiveness for the people and so that his knees became hard after the, man, the manner of a camel, and on count of always bending down upon his knees while worshiping God and asking for the forgiveness of his people. Church history says that James was called camel knees. 
right? It's like, I'm never going to get a nickname, especially be called Camel Knees, right? Now, I can think of better nicknames than Camel Knees, but nevertheless, I'm not going to get a nickname. I'm not going to be able to pray like these guys. How is that even possible? I feel totally inadequate when I look at the prayer lives of the great men and women who have gone before us. That, that these guys are like super saints, you know, I'm, I'm a lowercase saint with a lowercase s. These guys are prayer warriors, I'm a prayer warrior. Like, they're JV, I'm varsity. I'm, I'm never going to stack up when it comes to the prayers of these great men. Does anybody else feel like that when you look at the lives of others? And so here's, here's, the, here's the big idea. These men had the same struggles in life that you and I go through. But here's the big difference between their prayer life and how we should grow in ours, is they did not allow the hurry of life to rob them of their purpose of life. They did not allow the busy and the hectic and the hurry to rob them of their purpose. The greatest glory they had was giving glory to God. And that should be the same as it is for our lives. There's grace for us in the moment. There's grace for us in our lives. God's not expecting you to, 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 to pray for eight hours a day and to quit your job and to move to a mountain and sit in the lotus position and, and pray. That's not what God's calling us to do. What he's calling us to do is to interject prayer into our everyday lives to live with gospel intentions. That's what God is calling us to do when it comes to being people of, of prayer. And so when it comes to prayer, here's what I, here's what I want to tell you is that the big idea to learn to pray is very simple. It's to know this. First, God is a father. God is a father. That he loves you with the love and the affection of a father. The same way that a child would talk to the dad, it's the same way that we are talked to God as our father. And then as a good dad, his love is always towards you as a child that his ear is always open to you, he's always there for you, he's always there to save you. That's God, God is a father. And then the second thing is this, is that we are to be in relationship or to be in community together as a family. That God is a great father and that we as the church are a family. That God has adopted us into the body of Christ. So now we become brothers and sisters in Christ and that we can go and we can pray to God together. Now see, look, Prayer is not something that comes natural to me, right? It's not something that comes natural to anyone. And that's because, in essence, prayer is supernatural. That no one seeks God, no one desires God, nobody has an innate position within themselves to be a lover of God. The Bible says no one seeks God. We've all turned and we've all followed ourselves. We're bent in towards sin and selfishness. And so what we need is we need God to restore us into that reconciled relationship. So he sends his son Jesus to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that you and I, we deserve because of our sins. He takes upon himself our sins and gives us grace, redemption, and reconciliation, which is the only way it's possible for us to be people of prayer. See, but God doesn't just save us and leave us. He gives us the Holy Spirit to enable us, empower us, to teach us how we are to pray. And also, God gives us a community a family, to live out a life of prayer. You know how I learned how to pray? By being around other people who prayed. That's how I learned how to pray. 
in community as a, as a family. See, I'd always heard prayer is natural, relational, conversational, should be simple. I'd always heard that, but it wasn't until I got in a community group that met in our house, surrounding with other people in our lives, and I said, oh, that's how you do it. Oh, that's, that's, how, that's what it looks like. And what I learned from that is that it doesn't matter how you pray, when you pray, where you pray, why you pray, as long as we pray. And so, in that regards, prayer is more caught than it is taught. That we look at other people and say, oh, that's how it goes. And I think that's the reason why Jesus, when he entered into his earthly life and his ministry, the first thing that he did was he gathered people around him to live in community with him. He gathered 12 men to make them his disciples, and they ate together, they walked around together, they, they, they lived together, they prayed together in community. And they got to see from the life of Jesus what prayer looked like. Now, Jesus didn't preach like long expositional sermons on prayer. He didn't write a book about, hey, this is prayer. But what he did was he modeled it to the people that were closest to him. He showed them, this is what it looks like when you pray. And those men, after Jesus' resurrection and ascension, they, they went on to become pastors and church planters and apostles and write several books of the Bible. And out of those books, under the illumination of the Holy Spirit, we get a glimpse into the prayer life of Jesus. And they teach us what it means to pray like Jesus. And so the big idea we're tackling today is when we pray, and then we're going to do where we pray. So we want to see what it looked like for Jesus to, to pray. Do you think Jesus was busy? Yes. Do you think Jesus had a hectic life, had relational strain? Do you think Jesus had things that he was going through very similar to us? Absolutely. But Jesus still made it a point to pray. So let's take a look at Jesus' life and see when Jesus prayed. First is, it tells us that Jesus prayed daily. Here's what it says in Mark 12, 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. Scribes are the religious people. They're trying to capture Jesus and trick him. Um, and get him in trouble. And they see it, and they ask, which of the commandment is most important of all? And Jesus answered, the most important is this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. All right, so you may hear this, and you may think, okay, well, what does that have to do with prayer? Right? That's Jesus talking about the great commandment, love God, love people. Like, we all know the great commandment, love God, love people. That one's and pretty popular. But what does this have to do with prayer? Glad you asked. What Jesus is actually doing here is he is praying the scriptures. He's praying a prayer known as the Shema. All right, this is out of Deuteronomy 6.4. The Shema is the most important prayer for the Jewish people. It says, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. They would pray this prayer regularly all throughout the day. It was always to be on their lips. It was always to be on their eyes that they were just focusing on this prayer known as the Shema. So they would pray it in the synagogues. They would pray it in the temples. Moms would teach their little boys how to pray the Shema. And then men would speak this prayer as the very last words of their life. The Lord our God, the Lord is, is one. And so Jesus is constantly praying this prayer. He's constantly in relationship with the Father. He's constantly submitting under the authority of Scripture and meditating in his life. It's a daily part of his everyday life. And this is the same way with us. Why is it so important for us to pray daily? Because if we don't, we'll forget. We'll forget who God is. 
We'll forget what God has done. We'll forget the redemption that we've received in Christ. That we'll become self-centered and self-focused and selfish. And we won't be centered upon Christ. See, if we're not praying daily, we're not connected to the source of life that we have. And when we're not connected to the source of life, we begin to take it out on those around us. And when we're not praying daily, we can't love God nor love people. That you can't give someone something you don't have. So how could you love people if you don't love God first? That we show our love to God by being in relationship with him. Prayer is foundational for us living a missional life. Because we, we can't love others unless we're growing in our love for God. And we do that through prayer. See, Ashley's very quick to notice when I'm not praying well. When I'm not praying well, when I'm not reading my Bible every day, when I'm not worshiping as I ought to, Ashley is very quick to notice. And she points it out to me. And I love her for that because the purpose of marriage is to produce holiness in one another's lives. The purpose of marriage is sanctification. She's making a disciple out of me. And she's calling me out. She said, Byron, you need to go read your Bible, right? Because she notices when I'm not doing it as I ought to. Because I can't love her the way God's designed. For us to work in our marriage, if I'm not connected to God, I can't give her what I don't have. And this is why it's so important for us to pray daily to remember who God is, what God has done, and what God expects out of our lives, to love God, love people. Jesus prayed daily for that reason. Second is, Jesus prayed early, all right? Mark 135. And rising early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Do you hear that, guys? He said he prayed early. This one might bum some of you guys out, but um, it's good to get up early. It says, while it was dark, that's early. So you college guys, you need to know this. Just because McDonald's serves breakfast all day doesn't mean you have to wake up at lunch. It's good to get up early even while it's still dark. Now, it doesn't mean stay up till 3 a.m. and pray. It means start your day with prayer, night owls, right? Start your day off with prayer. And, and you know why we do this is because there's, one, there's not a lot of distractions at 4 a.m., there's not a lot of things to keep you from God at 4 a.m. The, the Facebook's dead. Instagram's quiet. There's no emails happening. Nobody's calling you. Mostly, the kids are probably still asleep. It's the perfect time to get alone with just you and God and no distractions. And no distractions are at 4 a.m. See, I believe that as Jesus went to pray in desolate places, maybe 4 a.m. is the most desolate place in America. We need to retreat to those desolate places to wake up and to start our day off with prayer. See, when we start our day off with prayer, here's what happens, is it focuses our life around the sovereignty of God. That you can say, oh, like, I'm not, I don't have to be so frustrated because I know God's in control. I know I don't have to react because I know that God has already blessed me. I, I don't have to panic. I don't have to freak out. I know God's still good. I know God's still sovereign. I know he's still on the throne. We talked this morning. It's going to be okay. And from that position, it really centers all of our lives around the sovereignty of God to wake up and to pray early. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. Next, Jesus prayed at mealtime. This is what he says in Matthew 14, 19. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down on the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fishes, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves, and he gave them to his disciples, and the disciples then gave them to the crowd. See, I get made fun of this one, okay? Like, because I still pray over my meals. 
right? I might get made fun of it. It's like a new thing in Christian circles to kind of just like knock, like praying over your food. I don't understand it. You may call me old-fashioned. I call myself biblical, like Jesus, um, because Jesus prayed over his meals, all throughout the New Testament, all throughout the Gospels, we see prayers of thankfulness, prayers of blessing, prayers of provision when it comes to food. Here, Jesus breaks the fishes and the loaves, and he distributes it. This happens on two occasions, by the way, where Jesus feeds four to 5,000 people twice. Okay, that's pretty amazing. Now, imagine like this. You got a taco, and you want to pray over the taco, and then you have five tacos. Like, that's never happened to me, but I'm going to keep praying, right? Maybe one day it'll happen. Keep praying. Don't lose faith. Now, when you come to pray over food, let me say this. This is not in my notes. This is something me and Ashley were discussing over dinner. People pray, Lord, let this food be nourishing to our bodies. Now, this one's just kind of a little funny, though, because um, that's what food does, is it nourishes your body. So that's like saying, Lord, thank you. Help this water be wet. Like, it, it just already nourishes your body. So, like, that's kind of weird to pray, unless your diet's just nothing but, like, Twinkies and, like, you know, fair food. Then you say, Lord, take some of this nourishment out. Um, but the food nourishes your body. So when you pray, be thankful for what God has given you under his provision. And that's a great way to model prayer to your kids. It's a great way for you to model prayer to those around you. And you eat three times a day, so that's a good way to pray three additional times a day. Jesus broke bread when he served communion for the first time. That's kind of a big deal, right? Jesus prayed with people on the Emmaus Walk as they ate together, they drank together, had a good time together. Pray over your meals. It's simple. It's easy. Now, have we ever considered where Jesus prayed? Have you ever thought about that? What does it mean to pray like Jesus? Where did Jesus pray? Do we have any special places in Christianity that we look to Jesus and we get like special cell service when it comes to our prayer, when we're trying to talk to God? Is there a certain way or position or place that we're to pray? See, Ashley and I, when we, uh, for our one-year anniversary, we went to this place called Enchanted Rock for our, our you know, second honeymoon type thing. And at this time, um, we were young and in love. I mean, we're still in love, just not as young. Um, and it, it, we, we were passionate about Jesus. I had just, you know, we'd just gotten saved. It's been about a year or two, and I had just received my confirmation to ministry from my pastor. We had that community group that was meeting at our house. We were reading our Bibles all the time. We were just on fire for Jesus. So here's what we wanted to do for our anniversary, is we wanted to go to Enchanted Rock, and we wanted to pray. Enchanted Rock's this huge monolithic rock dome out in West Texas. It's absolutely amazing. And Ashley and I, we enjoy primitive camping, which means nothing fancy, just a backpack, you, God, in the woods. That's all. Pack in, pack out, leave it like you found it type camping. So that's what we want to do. Primitive camping, climb the top of this mountain thing and pray. And, uh, and so as we do, we drive out to Enchanted Rock and we get there, we set up, and then we climb up to the top of the, the rock, which is a very sacred place for the American Indians. And we get to the very top of it, and we must have gone on like hippie, happy yoga day or something like that, because there's like all of these like Austinites just doing yoga and bending into pretzels and like saying, um, and just sitting on top of this mountain praying. And we're like, oh, love Austin. This is cool. So we just kind of walked around 
and you know, we got to our little space. We surveyed creation. We saw the glory of God through his majesty. We, we prayed together. We ate together. And we went down, down the mountain. And I will never forget, this is amazing what Ashley said. She turned to me and she said, isn't it, isn't it amazing that God is just as close to us in the car as he is on the mountain? See, in Christianity, we don't have sacred places. In Christianity, we don't have all of these things, and that's one of the things that separates us from all the other religions in the world, is that we don't have a place that we have to make a pilgrimage to because God's always present with us. Wherever we're at, whatever we're going through, wherever we are, God's with us. See, in Christianity, this is one of the things that Martin Luther and John Calvin and the Heidelberg Catechism really hammered out for us, is what's called the priesthood of all believers, that, that if you accept Jesus and you have the Holy Spirit living within you, then you have the righteousness of God and you can go and you can talk to him at any time. See, we don't have sacred places. We don't have temples that we have to make pilgrimages to because we are the temple. We don't have a priest that has to atone for our sins because Jesus is our high priest. We don't have to perform sacrifices because Jesus has performed the perfect sacrifice. And this is one of the reasons in Jesus' life that, that really frustrated all of the religious people of the day because they knew that, that, that Jesus was bucking the trends, that all the things that, that they had passed down from generation to generation, all the traditions, all of the religion, his disciples and him, they were just kind of doing their own thing. And what Jesus was teaching us is that we can pray wherever at, whenever, because God always listens. See, your pastor, one, me, one of my first prayers I prayed was in a motel room. Right. Did Jesus hear that prayer? Yes. Or you'd need a new pastor. It doesn't matter where we're at, we can pray. And this is what Jesus teaches us. So let's consider four places that Jesus prayed. This is where first place Jesus prayed is Jesus prayed publicly. This is in Mark eleven seventeen. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, that's important, remember that, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they might believe that you have sent me. So here's Jesus. Massive crowds following Jesus in his life. Massive crowds. There's people gathered all around him. And then Jesus does what Jesus does. Performs a miracle. And everyone just like freaks out. So Jesus immediately turns to the crowd, raises his hands, and he prays publicly. What he's doing is he's showing them that this is only possible because of God. And then Jesus begins to teach through his prayer the nature of God. And this is amazing. First, he starts off with this, Father. Okay, That's completely unique within Jesus' ministry. Before that, nobody has ever referred to God as Father. No one believed that you could have a relationship with God as Father. It's not present in the Old Testament. It's specifically unique to Jesus' ministry. He says, Father. And then he goes on and he prays. And he says, I know that you hear me speaking to God. He says, but they don't. So Jesus is modeling that God is a father and he listens to the prayers of his children. He's modeling that through his teaching. Do you know that? That God listens to your prayers. Do you know that? See, Jesus is teaching this to them because it's so important for their life. And so maybe you'll get an opportunity one day to pray publicly. I'd say take that opportunity. Because you get to teach others what it looks like to be in a relationship with God as a father, to pray. 
Now, I wouldn't go, you know, post it on Facebook, like your whole lengthy, long thing to be a big spectacle or cause a scene. I wouldn't be weird about it, but I'd be honest and just say, God, this is a wonderful opportunity. Whether at a gathering, whether in a group, whether at work, whether with the city, whatever it may be, take the opportunity to pray and teach people what it looks like to be in relationship with God as Father. The second thing is he prayed privately. Luke 5, 15 and 16. But now even more, the report about him went abroad and great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities, but he would withdraw to desolate places. There's those places again. And he would do what? He would pray. So the crowds are still gathering around Jesus. People are coming from miles away. They're coming in droves to to see Jesus or to be seen with Jesus or to be seen by Jesus. And so Jesus is building this great big reputation. If Jesus was today, this would be like, you know, paparazzi or media, like a celebrity or something. Everybody just wants to get to Jesus. And so Jesus was busy. Jesus had a crazy, hectic life. And then Jesus withdraws to pray. Okay, Jesus had to withdraw and he had, he had to pray. He had to get away from all that. Do you ever feel like that? Like life is crazy? Like people are coming at you from every angle, that everyone just wants something from you. Nobody really wants something for you. They're just taking. They're not giving. The email's piling up. The invoices are full. You got student loans that are just going crazy. You can't keep up with your bills. What do you do in that moment? You need to get away and pray. You need to take a step back. You need to take a deep breath. And you need to take a moment and get alone with God and you need to pray. Even Jesus had to get alone and pray. God himself had to step back and take a minute, take a moment, and take a day to pray. See, this is something that we don't talk about in the American culture nor in the American church because we have an idol of busy, but it's called a Sabbath. It's a day that you set apart to be holy for the Lord. Jesus had to take a Sabbath. If God had a Sabbath when his creation, when he was making the universe, and God had a Sabbath when he was walking this earth, why do we think we'd be any different? Here's the point, is you need to take a break or it will break you. If you don't rest, God will make you rest. Take a step back, pray privately to be built up in your inner man, in your spirit, to get connected with God so you can go out and do what he's called you to do. Pray privately. That's good. Next, he prays in groups. Jesus prayed in small groups. Luke 9, 28. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with Peter and John and James and they went up to the mountain to pray. Jesus was in a missional community. Jesus was in a missional community. You know, we don't make this stuff up. Right? It's not like, oh, this would be a good idea. Oh, we just discovered this new invention. Oh, like, hey, I just came up with this big, great idea. Like, we don't make up groups. We get them from Jesus and his disciples. That Jesus lived in community with other people. That Jesus, he had people he ate with, he drank with, he did life with, that he prayed with on a regular, daily basis in these groups with these men. So we have groups here at the church. I don't believe that you were created to do life alone. You were created in community. You're made in the image of God, who is Trinity. There's God, Father, 
uh, God the Son, God the Spirit, all in relationship and harmony with one another, that's how you were designed to be as well. So when the busy and the hurry and the crazy of your life happens, your natural inclinations is to retreat and to withdraw and to pull away from community. What God has designed for you is to get involved in a community. That Jesus needed a group, so you need a group. My favorite night is Tuesday night when our group meets. I love it. I love when our group meets and we eat together, we sit around the table, we laugh, we we share stories, we challenge one another, we argue, we fight sometimes, and it's cool because we're a family and we pray together, and that's amazing. Every week as we close our group, we sit there and we pray together. My favorite day of the week, and it's life-changing. So you need to get in a group. I challenge you. If you don't have one, get in one. We got them in Orange and Beaumont, Mid-County. There's groups near you. Get in a group. Jesus needed a group. You need a group. Lastly, here's what Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed corporately. Okay, He prayed for the church. Mark 11:17. 17. And he was teaching them and saying to them, it is not written, is it not written that my house shall be a house of prayer for all the nations? True or false? The church should be different. True. True or false? The church should be separate from the world. True. There's something uniquely different about how we live our lives. When you come to church, you should come here and expecting something different than you would get from any other place. That that we are called out and we are set apart. That's what the church actually means. The church in the word church comes from the word ecclesia, which is in the New Testament, which means a gathering of people who have been called out. So it means God has chosen us, God has called us out of the world. Now we still live in the world, but we're not to be a part of the world. So when you come to church, we're called out. The Old Testament word was kahal, which means assembly or um, set apart, to be holy. And so when you come to church, we're called out, we're set apart for godliness and holiness. And one of the things that's unique about the church is that we are to be a place or a people of prayer. I made the joke in week one when it comes to prayer that when we were praying for one another, you're like, hey, you might feel uncomfortable, you might feel a little awkward, but I want to remind you, this is church, not Taco Bell, right? You get things at church that you can't get anywhere else. And one of those things is to be a place of prayer. And so we try to put prayer on the forefront of who we are as a church because we believe that prayer is powerful and that there is power in our prayers, And so when we gather together in prayer, God is present. I believe that. So we open Sunday morning prayer, and we have some of our team there, but we would want all of our church to be present for Sunday morning prayer because that's a powerful time for us. It starts at 9.50. And I say this not as a a condemnation. I'm saying this as a concern, is that I don't feel like we pray very well as a church. And that's probably my fault as your pastor because I haven't led you in that. I haven't made it a priority in my life and I can't give you what I don't have as well. So I assume responsibility for that. But we just don't pray very well as a church. I believe God wants to do more in our lives. God wants to do more in our church. God wants to do more in our ministries. God wants to do more for our city. God wants to do more for our families. And it starts with prayer. It starts with prayer. Every week, we we have a prayer team up front. 
as we're closing out the service, I say, hey, guys, I know you're going through stuff. I know you're working on stuff. I know life is hell. I know life is hard. I know there's something happening. Please come forward for prayer, and you white-knuckle your seats. I don't know why. I don't know if you're scared. I don't know if you're ashamed. I don't know if you've never been taught or you're just waiting for the next person to take the step. But those need not be reasons to hinder yourself from receiving everything God has for you. We want to pray for you because prayer is powerful. I've been convicted on this throughout this whole series. That's why I started off by sharing you really convicting stories from men and women who pray because I don't do it the way I ought to. And so I want to become a place or a people of prayer as a church. So here's what I do. In closing, I want to share you a story. I'm going to share with you a story that transformed my prayer life. It happened, I read it first several years ago while we were in New York. Um, and when I read this story, I was, it wasn't like all those other stories because I could do this one. I was like, okay, I got that one. Changed the way I see prayer corporately, changed the way I prayer, see prayer for my family, changed the way I see prayer for me personally. So here's the story. Um, there's this, he's one of my favorite preachers, one of my favorite theologians and dead guys. Um, his name's Charles Spurgeon, okay? He's a great Baptist minister from the 1800s. Um, Spurgeon is, they call him the prince of preachers. Now, while Spurgeon never wrote a book, um, his sermons are probably some of the most widely read works of literature in the last couple hundred years. So Spurgeon's big, big famous guy in our tradition. And uh, he actually pastored what is probably the first mega church, right? So this is in the 1800s. And Spurgeon, his church was about 5,000 people on a regular Sunday. This is in England. And now in that day, like there was no seats, there was no you know, lights, there was no fog machine, like 5,000 people, they were there for one purpose, for the preaching of the word of God and the presence of God himself. Like that's why they gathered. And so, so Spurgeon's preaching and he's got 5,000 people. There's another thousand in you know, an overflow room. So he's kind of a big deal. And you know, when like big deals like that happen, it always gathers the attention of young, young adults and young men. And so there was these young men who were um, traveling on their vacation, and they heard about what was happening at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, which is where Spurgeon was at. And they said, hey, you know what? Let's go check that out. That sounds, that sounds fun. So they get up one Sunday morning, and then they go to the Met, and they wanted to be there early because they wanted to take a tour of the place. They said, oh, that sounds pretty cool. I want to see what's happening at that church. So they go in. And as they walk into the Met, there is... Um, an older gentleman that meets him. And he says, hey, young men, would you like to take a tour of the place? They're like, yeah, that's great. That's why we came early. So these young men uh, followed this older guy around and he showed him all the cool stuff. You know, he showed him like, hey, this is the auditorium. This is the vestry. This is the pulpit. This is our fellowship hall. This is where all this stuff is happening. And they're like, oh man, this is awesome. This is great. This is cool. And then he says, as the tour is coming to an end and service is about to begin, he says, hey, do you want to uh, check out our boiler room? And they're like, mm, no, don't want to see the boiler room. He's like, no, it's in the basement. And they're like, no, don't want to do that. That sounds like a terrible idea. And he says, no, seriously, like, it's probably you know, like the most important part of our church. It's what keeps the church warm. It's what keeps the church hot. 
So these guys are like, all right, whatever, we'll go check it out. So they go down into the basement, into the boiler room, and he opens up the door, and there's 700 men and women on their knees praying for their city, for souls, for their gathering. That's what keeps the church hot. It's the prayers of its people. I want to be like that. The man that greeted him at the front door was none other than Spurgeon himself. That's the kind of pastor I want to be. And that's the kind of church that I want to be a part of. A church that is willing to get on their knees, do business with the Lord for the souls of the city. Because prayer is powerful. Prayer changes who we are. Prayer changes how God moves. Prayer changes everything. If we would just covenant together to be a people of prayer. I want to be that pastor. Will you join me and be that church? Redemption Church meets every Sunday morning on Crockett Street at The Gig. If you would like to know more, you can find us online at www.redemptiontx.com or join us at 10.30 a.m. Sunday mornings in downtown Beaumont. Kids are always welcome too. We are Redemption, and we would love to meet you.